Welcome to Zooming In, a project of the Unpopulist. I'm Aaron Ross Powell. It's all too common to dismiss ideas without understanding them. Feminism suffers this affliction more than most, with many people quick to denounce it while evincing very little knowledge of what feminists argue or what evidence they muster to support their claims. To help address that unfortunate ignorance, I'm joined today by Kat Murdy, co-founder of Feminists for Liberty. It seems like a lot of the disagreements about feminism, the value of feminism, the place of feminism come down to, or at least are informed by, disputes about definition, what we mean by this term. So what do we mean by feminism? Well, I think you've uh, hit the nail on the head right there. People just don't agree what feminism is, and a lot of times they're responding to sort of a caricature of what they believe it to be rather than uh, how feminists themselves might describe it. And of course, there's so many different schools of feminism, just as there are different schools of libertarianism or other ideological beliefs, that there's disagreements even within that. But I agree with you. It helps if we're all coming from the same definitions. And so for me, I think the best definition of feminism is probably the most widely accepted one and the most general one, which is Feminism is the uh, advocacy for equality between the sexes or among the sexes. What does equality mean in this case? Because a lot of the anti-feminist arguments take the equality approach, but they they look at it in terms of outcomes, economics, you know, the majority of people entering college are women, women are achieving in the workforce, economic gains, like they look at it in kind of measurables and say those measurables point to equality or at least not as much inequality as we might believe. Therefore, feminism is unnecessary. But there's another kind of equality we might be talking about, which is social standing equality or relative privilege or power within society um, or with or within relationships. And that doesn't show up in the measurables. Right. So I think that there's a few different ways to look at that word equality because it's just as hard to define perhaps as feminism. Um, to start off with, let me say that, um, you know, oftentimes we talk about equality of opportunity versus equality of um, equality of outcome. And when I'm talking about equality, I'm really talking about that equality of opportunity, equal rule of law, equal legal standing, all of those kinds of things. Um, the the chance to compete, um, which for the vast majority of history was really not guaranteed to most people. And in fact, uh, the state was actively working to prevent women and um all sorts of other minorities, really the vast majority of humanity from being able to compete on an equal level. And so um, that's certainly at the core of this. But when you get to measurables as well, I, I think that there is something to be said for looking at data. I think data is an important indicator, but it doesn't really tell us the whole story. And so it's really valuable to look at the data in order to see patterns. And it's also very valuable to gender disaggregate this data a lot of times because it tells us a story that's quite different than the one that we might see 
on the, when we go into something. But of course, people make choices too. And that's not a problem. If we happen to see that women are more likely to do one thing than men are, or vice versa, that's not inherently a problem. It just is something that we could look further into to see why they are doing this. Is there uh, a legal reason? Sometimes there's a lot of regulatory burdens that might uh, push people in one direction or another based on gender, even if people aren't even thinking about it in that way. Is there a societal or a cultural reason? Is there a political reason? Are there ways in which our society is treating people differently on the basis of gender, regardless of um, them as individuals. And so I'm a libertarian feminist. Um, For me, the way that I look at this is very much that gender equality is tied not just to the social and cultural liberty, but to economic liberty as well. That um, the the long history of women's liberation is in many ways uh, the story of women's greater access to markets, greater access to capital, and then therefore oftentimes um, greater political, cultural, social uh, choice as women, um, as individuals. And so when I'm thinking about equality, I'm really thinking about does everyone have a chance to compete and are they treated equally when they do? Let me pick up real quick on that, the access to markets as a driver of of women's economic equality um, and economic growth. One thing I often wonder is there's a there's a common pattern on the right of looking at theories that they view as being of the left. And so feminism falls into this category, critical race theory falls into this category, and so on. And seeing that the people who are the main, who they view as as the main advocates of these theories come to non-market sorts of conclusions. Right, like where I am a feminist, and I am going to among the things I'm blaming for the place of women is capitalism or markets. Or I'm a critical race theorist, and one of the things that I am blaming is capitalism or free markets, and therefore we need more state intervention. And someone who's on the right or among libertarian circles or so on looks at that and says, "I don't want more government intervention. I'm a big fan of free markets, etc." Therefore the theory is wrong or suspect, as opposed to saying they're drawing the wrong economic conclusions for the underlying theory, but the theory itself or the things that it's pointing to or the problems it's identifying are genuine and I should wrestle with them even if I come to different conclusions. How much of the anti-feminism we see in a lot of circles, do you think is simply that, is rejecting the the economic leftism of a lot of feminists, but kind of confusing that for rejecting the theory itself? I think it's certainly a marked part of it. I don't think that that fully uh, explains what's happening here, but yeah, absolutely. I think that there's we hear things like feminism is Marxism, and that's just not true. There are of course, schools of feminism, including um, Marxist feminism. But that doesn't mean that feminism itself is. And I think you're sort of putting the cart before the horse when you view it as fundamentally an economic theory that then uh, discredits everything else that feminism has to offer. Um, 
and even so, many Marxist feminists themselves have uh, pushed back on um, on those who put the Marxism ahead of feminist ideas about equality and about uh, rule of law and those kinds of things. But I think that there's also, um, it does us a great disservice as advocates of human liberty. Um, because if we are not addressing the same issues that people that we disagree with are, um, and if the only thing that we have to contribute is that is a feminist issue, uh, and I disagree with feminism because I like capitalism, then, of course, one, you're uh, creating a great reason for people who are not totally sold on this idea of capitalism to therefore oppose capitalism, because you're essentially telling them that it's not for people who believe in uh, women's liberation, women's equality, or... Um, you know, other things like that. Uh, you're also just completely seeding the ground for policy solutions and um, ideological uh, arguments for why the real problem is the state. And we need to remove the state and um, free the individual to make choices in a way that really has been absent, including when it comes to markets. Um and of course, there there's a long history of libertarian feminism. I've been reading the book um, "Reclaiming the Mainstream" that was published in the early '90s by Joan Kennedy Taylor. She was a libertarian feminist, very much a libertarian, definitely not a Marxist, and she talks about this as well. One of my favorite quotes about libertarian feminism comes from that book. I'm going to be butchering it as a paraphrase, but essentially. Um, her thesis is that women have always been drawn to the idea of individualism that feminism represents, the idea that they should be able to make, uh, that they should be able to take ownership of their own lives and their own bodies and make their own choices. And yet uh, there are ideologues on the left and ideologues on the right who benefit from viewing feminism as fundamentally about the sort of statist action, whether that's... Um, in the marketplace or other other types of status solutions. And that not only is significantly less popular uh, as an idea than feminism as a whole, but also it oftentimes uh, shortchanges women and it shortchanges the people who are meant to be benefiting from these policies. Um, I also think that there's another element here. Um, and, you know, this came up several years ago when the whole thick versus thin libertarian argument was very in vogue. But um, I think a lot of people look at this as, okay, but if it's not the state, and a lot of times it is the state, but if it's not the state, if this is a question of choices, then as a libertarian, people should be able to make their own choices. And absolutely, I agree. As a libertarian, people should be able to make their own choices. And sometimes they can't. And we should address that and we should look at that and we should see why. Uh, and sometimes it's getting the state out of the way, and sometimes it's making an argument for cultural change. Sometimes it's selling the marketplace of ideas, this idea that no one should be oppressed, um, people should have the ability to make their own choices, and that individuals matter. We often like to say that there is simply nothing more collectivist than treating someone as nothing more than a representative of their sex or gender. And I think that's a deeply libertarian idea while also being a deeply feminist idea. 
how then do we respond to the argument that lots of people who say they're not feminists or they reject feminism say, of course I believe in equality between the sexes. Of course I believe that the, the law, the state should not treat people differently because they are a man or a woman. Um, of course I believe that women should be treated equally in society. But that's different from like, why is that feminism as opposed to just believing in equal treatment? This is this is analogous, if I want to be a little bit unfair, it's analogous to the people responding to Black Lives Matter with All Lives Matter, right? But it's, the, it's a similar sort of move of, of course I believe this, but I think it just applies to everyone. And what you feminists are actually saying, because you're not you're not just kind of saying everyone should be equal. What you're saying is there's something you're, – you're privileging women in this equation in, in the name of your, your ideology, feminism, say. Uh, but, but there's something more going on. There's a, there's a sense of we live in a patriarchy and we have to attack that and so on. That this is fundamentally different from simply the claim that people should be treated equally independent of – their sex or gender. So you just packed a whole lot into that question. And I want to start first and foremost by saying that feminism is not just about women, which is very confusing to people in part because it starts with the root femme, right? But uh, we have to look at this as um, throughout the history of this movement, it certainly did start as being about women's rights and women's equality because for the vast majority of human history, and certainly for the majority of American history, ranging from colonial times um, as a result of laws that were brought over from uh, Europe all the way up until, honestly, the uh, 80s and 90s, a lot of laws really did differentiate based upon sex and gender. We do still have some remnants today, um, but it is much less uh much less the way in which the world works now than how it did, right? So the focus was on women from an early stage. However, feminism today actually does address uh, issues of sexism, whether it impacts a woman or a man or anybody else, right? It's, it's more about allowing individuals to be individuals rather than gendered stereotypes, forcing them into specific boxes. And there's many ways in which um, feminists have actually fought for men's rights or trans rights or things like that as well. And it's not just a newer phenomenon, although, of course, that's much more of where the discourse is these days than it was in, say, the 1800s. But uh, there's many ways in which uh, feminism has specifically positively impacted men. Uh, and that ranges from, for example, um, in the fight for the ERA, what I found really interesting is um, a lot of the uh, people coming out against the ERA um people who opposed to the Equal Rights Amendment in the fight for the 70s. Of course, this kind of started before then, but the big the big era where people were really talking about this was in the 70s. And um, a lot of the people who opposed the ERA opposed it on the grounds that, 
okay, but then women would have to be drafted. Okay, but then women would have to be treated the same under the law. And they couldn't have protective legislation that was meant to give them an advantage and things like that. And feminists were coming out saying, that's good. We don't want that. Um, Most feminists, especially of that era, of course, were against the draft, uh, just as most libertarians are against the draft for everyone, regardless of gender. But what I found really interesting is that it was the feminists who were pushing and saying, no, men should not get drafted. Men should not be treated unequally in these ways. So that was very much a part of the feminist fight. Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who is um, definitely a feminist, definitely not a libertarian, someone I don't agree with on many different things. But what a lot of people miss is that her very first case that she argued in court was actually a tax law case. And it was a way in which the tax law negatively impacted men. There was a man who was a caretaker for his mother. This is Moritz. There was a man who was a caretaker for his mother, but because he had never been married, uh, he was not able to take a caretaker's tax credit because the IRS simply decided that caretakers would, in most cases, be women and only in very narrow cases that did not include unmarried men uh, could be men. And so this was a feminist issue in order for men to be able to take a tax credit that previously was only open to women. Um, and there's just numerous examples over the years um, in the, the the fight for uh, the changing of the federal definition of rape, for example, in uh, the early 2000s. Uh, a big focus of that was the fact that the federal government previously had defined rape so that it only it, the uh, the a Someone could only be raped if they were a woman. And of course, this is a huge problem, particularly considering that the federal government runs these massive prisons filled with men who are subject to rape uh, all the time and all of these other problems. So these are all ways, these are feminist causes that fundamentally focus on men's rights and men's equality. So I think that that is really important that we realize that feminism is not just about women and it's not about privileging women. That doesn't mean that there aren't people who will make those arguments um, as there are with every single ideological belief that you could have. There are people who make sort of like disingenuous or poorly thought out um, arguments, whether they're coming at it from a a pro position or a con position. Right. Um, So I frequently get asked, okay, then if feminism is not just about women, why call yourself a feminist? Why not call yourself an egalitarian or, you know, uh, from the other side of the coin as a libertarian feminist, they might say, well, okay, if you're saying that feminism is part and parcel of the larger libertarian umbrella, why specifically call yourself a libertarian feminist and not just call yourself a libertarian? And I think that there's a few reasons that that matters. And one is that feminism is a thing that everyone all over the world already knows about. That is an existing movement uh, that is focused on a certain set of issues that means something to people and that mostly means that you believe in gender equality. And so uh, by refusing to engage with the people who care about these issues, uh, you're not actually furthering them it's sort of uh, you're being overly uh overly concerned about the label i think without actually thinking about what the impact is and now to some degree i don't care whether an individual chooses to call themselves a feminist any more than i care that an individual chooses to call themselves a libertarian 
I care that they are not sexist, do not support sexism, and believe in individual rights and freedom and liberty for everybody and are not working to oppress individuals, whether through the state or through other coercive means, right? So how they choose to identify is honestly not the fight for me. But I think that it is valuable to identify as a feminist, to be able to be part of those discussions and work on those issues. And this is something that's come up numerous times in the history even of libertarianism. Um, Tony Nathan, who many people know was one of the co-founders of the uh, Libertarian Party in the United States, and then went on to being the first woman to win an electoral college vote as the uh, Libertarian Party's um, vice presidential nominee in, um, I'm terrible with years, I think it was 1972 or something like that, the following year after the campaign, founded the Association for Libertarian Feminists. And she addressed this point at that right then that said, of course, as a libertarian, she felt that feminism was core to libertarian beliefs. But a lot of libertarians might focus on many different issues, as happens. And she specifically thought it was important to address feminist issues and the issues that feminists were concerned with from a libertarian perspective. And so I think that words matter and how people interpret your words matter. And uh, it, honestly, if if you truly are only concerned with the word feminism and the root of that word, and that's the thing that you're upset with, it seems to me that you're wasting energy trying to rename an existing movement rather than trying to focus on, you know, changing the ideas and changing the policies and doing things to make people freer and happier. It seems, too, that there is a lot of the anti-feminist views on on the right, the center right, the libertarian right, and so on, have to do with the cultural aspect of it as well. Kind of a uh, an objection to saying women have, say, been mistreated in the workplace, sexual harassment has been rife within the workplace and and you see a kind of you can't tell me what to do response in terms of oh so you're saying like I can't I can't anything I do is going to get me in trouble I can't hit on my colleagues anymore that sort of stuff that there's this you are you're telling me that my culture that the way that I behaved was wrong and people tend to react fairly strongly against that um, and and that gets baked into a lot of these critiques, and I think that also is what pushes the critiques in the direction of well, the data says this isn't a problem, right? Because then then that kind of that removes this like subjectivity, um, the the empathy side of it of understanding what it's like to be a woman in the workforce and have people hitting on you or making various remarks that they think of as innocent but add up to you know, what is it can be a hostile or toxic work environment and so on. It just seems like a lot of it is, I don't want you telling me my culture is bad or that I have been misbehaving. And so therefore I'm going to point to wealth differentials or higher education attainment or other things that kind of deflect from that. 
it is very, very difficult to feel like someone is telling you that you are doing something wrong or that you've been a bad person in some way, right? And that's really what it is. People feel personally attacked. They feel like this is a personal attack on them. It's saying that even though they think of themselves as a good person, even though they've tried to do good things in the world, they are a terrible person. And of course, no one likes hearing that. And it's worth mentioning that most of the time, most people are not terrible people. Most people want the world to be a better place. And most people are trying to be, you know, likable, kind human beings. It's just that sometimes that doesn't land. And um, I think that there's a few... I think that there's a few different things that happen here. I I, I think it's worth mentioning that um, some of the feminist messaging, some of the messaging around these issues um, could be improved because it is difficult to have people question themselves and certainly to question core things that they consider part of their identity and their gender is absolutely a part of that, right? And I think... Having, you know, if you use a sort of like brash uh, messaging that makes it sound to people like, for example, being a man is bad, of course, they're going to respond poorly and then they're going to find any possible way to discredit whatever you're going to say that makes it sound like being a man is bad. And of course, I don't think that being a man is bad. I think that men are perfectly fine individuals just like anyone else. And, uh, you know, we we need men in the world just like we need women in the world and everything else like that. And I think that um, certainly anything that causes people to respond in the sort of reactionary way, oftentimes we do see uh, a negative impact, you know? So so it is worth kind of being, thinking through the messaging that is used uh, a lot of times here. I think also, again, this more statist, um, the more statist responses to a lot of the problems that we might highlight around um highlight around gender discre- uh, discrepancies or things like that again cause this sort of reactionaryism that turns into this culture war and that then makes it part of someone's core identity to want to actively push back right i think we've seen a lot of this in recent years for example with the lgbt rights movement where, you know, we've had a lot of wins. And I think that that's been really good for individual freedom. And then now um, a lot of people are really targeting uh, LGBT folk, particularly because they feel personally attacked. And so they are now going out on the attack, right? And I don't think that that means that, um, you know, trying to create a world in which people should not be discriminated against or should definitely not be targets of violence based upon their sexuality or uh, their gender affiliation or anything like that is a problem. But I think that we need to be careful with the way in which we, we pursue those solutions, right? I think there's another part of this, and it almost ties to the seen and the unseen. Um, so... It's hard for most people to put themselves in someone else's shoes. Uh, And it's especially hard to put themselves in someone else's shoes when they identify with the opposite person there. So particularly when you're talking about sexual harassment, this is an issue that comes up a lot. Um, You know, a lot of men say now men feel scared to go to work 
Um, men are b- potentially being held back in the workplace. Pa- men are facing, um, you know, they're worried about how they can present themselves in the workplace, how they should talk, who they should talk to, what wording they should use, all of these kinds of things. That's impacting their work. And I think that it does to some extent, and I don't think all of that is necessarily negative. Some of it might be. But what they're missing is, yes, but women have had all of those same uh, concerns in the workplace for generations. Um, there's numerous studies that have shown, if we want to, uh, if we want to outweigh data with data, that women, uh, because of sexual harassment, have been held back. Where women's careers are held back, particularly women who make complaints about sexual harassment. They're less likely to advance in the workplace many times even than the men who have complaints made against them. Um, I do think that certainly as we get much more rigid and as we get more carceral in our approaches to these kinds of things, uh, that causes more problems, again, because of this reactionary problem. But um, yeah, I think sometimes, you know, cultural change is difficult, but it is important. And, um, you know, I think that it's better to live in a world where people get judged on the basis of merit rather than uh, to live in a world where people get judged by whether or not you're, uh, you know, willing to sleep with your boss or whether or not you're willing to um, put up with being groped at work or things like that. And so, uh, you know, those are also very real impacts that do affect the careers of women and have for a long time. Women have always worried about, okay, can I wear this? Can I do this? Can I speak like this? Should I be? Can I go into a meeting with a man and close the door behind me? Will it then raise these concerns? And I think that that's not a good environment for anybody. It's not the most productive work environment. So certainly we don't want to see that being a rising concern for men. And certainly we want to create an environment where people are able to learn and change how they're approaching other people in a way to create fewer of these problems without a, a punitive uh, a punitive approach to it. But, you know, this is never this is not a new problem that has just come out of the woodwork and now men are being targeted. This is just a shifting of who might be feeling some of the negative impacts around this. And this isn't even like a generational change just since the Me Too movement in 2016, where women started to talk about all of these kinds of issues, the percentage of women who uh, reported sexual harassment, who reported feeling unsafe at work, um, and who reported being held back in their careers because of um, unwanted or non-consensual sexual interfaces with people in the workplace, whether it was um, you know, verbal or otherwise, has significantly dropped. And that's from a cultural movement. That's not from laws. That's not from regulations. That's not from this carceral approach. And yes, there are men who now feel like, well, now I can't have meetings where, you know, in the meeting I make sexual comments about my coworkers. But, you know, I'm, maybe that's work's not the best place for that. Thank you for listening to Zooming In at the Unpopulist. If you enjoy this show, please take a moment to review us in Apple Podcasts. And also check out Reimagining Liberty, our sister podcast, The Unpopulist, where I explore the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical social, political, and economic freedom. 
Zooming In is produced by Landry Ayers and is a project of The Unpopulist.